When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome once again, everybody, to Blockbuster Mentality, the podcast where actors, filmmakers, critics, and content creators, and general movie fans get to dissect their favorite films. I'm your host, Ben. How's everyone doing? Hope everyone's doing all right. I know a lot of crazy things are going on in the world right now, but appreciate you joining us to to help escape from that and uh, dive into a movie with a great guest. Before we get started, please, please, please subscribe to us on iTunes, rate and review us. That would help us out a lot. Uh, just it's a quick click of a button, quick little sentence about what you like about the show if you don't like it leave that too we'd appreciate any uh constructive uh feedback as well uh today i'm speaking with a, another person who inspired me to start this podcast i know we spoke uh, to christian harloff a couple months back and he was one of the people who inspired me to start this, along with my guest today, which is John Campia, who is one of the first to to get the online movie punditry going. You know, he was one of the he was one of our forefathers in in all that. But no, it was an absolute treat getting to speak with him. Uh, it's just, yeah, I, I can't be grateful enough to be able to talk to the people who inspired me to to go on this journey. And today we are going to discuss uh, his new documentary uh, he has coming out called Movie Trailers, A Love Story. Sounds very interesting. We talk about that, so stay tuned for what that's all about. Um, definitely looking forward to that be sure to follow him on social media to get updates on when you can watch it where you can watch it and all that uh, after we talk about that we get into perhaps one of the greatest westerns of all time uh from the 90s not and i'm talking all time but the film is from the 90s 1992's unforgiven directed by clint eastwood starring clint eastwood and morgan freeman gene hackman richard harris and we we get into it we get into this movie uh john was very passionate about it it was very exciting to hear why he loved this movie and and his ideas from it and all that so really hope you guys enjoy this conversation and again here is my talk with the john campia enjoy I know, um, you know, you're a Canada guy. I'm from Detroit originally, so I'm a big hockey guy. Oh, I it would drive through Detroit. I went to uh, when I was a kid. I went to the old Joe Lewis and oh, nice, uh, yeah, stuff like that. Actually, my my friend uh, Aaron Cummings, who's on my show uh, once a week with me, she's uh, she's an actress. Um, she was on that show, Detroit One Eight Seven. She oh, was one okay. of the and so and then she started. Uh, uh, charity there called Mittens for Detroit, and she continues it on to this day. So she goes back to Detroit a couple times a year for the charity and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I've I've a lot of connections to Detroit. Nice, good stuff, man. I'm a uh, un- well, fortunately in the hockey world, but uh, I'm in Tampa now, which it was nice seeing the Lightning win, you know, the cup and everything. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> still, still diehard, uh, diehard Red Wings fan. So you know, oh Stevie uh, Y is one of my all-time favorites. I was going to ask you if you had a favorite Red Wing player. So. Oh yeah, Stevie Y. Oh for sure. <laughs> yeah. And then he went on to GM the the gold medal Canadian team. I mean, yep. He's a great exec. He's a great player, great executive. Yeah, he's yeah, I mean, all-time he said- favorite. Yeah, he essentially built the the Tampa team that that won it this year. So, so then yeah, was... uh, the, a great example of the universe being unfair. You guys then got Dominic Hasek somehow, <laughs> some way, and yeah, just uh, it's a re- real real struggle as a Maple Leaf fan seeing all the good stuff going to Detroit. But yeah, I know, I know, we're we're back in that struggle now. So you know, it's <laughs> uh, I I feel you, man. I feel you. 
<laughs> but uh, but yeah, I mean, it's great, great having you on. Great, uh, you know, fellow hockey fan. Finally, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, what? Uh, so yeah, let's let's talk about what you got going on. I know you have a documentary that you've been working on trailers a love story did i get the i got the title right right yep. movie trailers uh, a love mo- story yep i didn't get the tra- trailer right <laughs> damn it uh, <laughs> movie trailers a love story of uh, how long has this been in concept i mean we, you don't you don't have to go too far into it i'm sure you talk to death but people who might not know uh, about it what, what what was the genesis of this well i mean for the longest time i I've, I've always liked to stay active in actual, you know, content creation, as well as being, you know, an online film pundit and stuff like that. And, you know, I made my first movie, a documentary about 13 years ago. And and one of the main reasons I did that, and then I made a little romantic comedy narrative as well. And, And one of the main reasons was because I felt like you can't really appreciate what it is filmmakers do unless you try doing it yourself. And I've always felt that just gives you a better appreciation uh, for that. I mean, one of the reasons Daniel Cormier is such a great play-by-play guy for UFC is because he's a UFC fighter. I, one of the reasons Joe Rogan is so entertaining is because he's a legit mixed martial artist. Sure. And so I've always felt it was important to do that. And so, you know, I've made a couple of films before and I've been an executive producer on some network stuff. Like I made, uh, I, I executive produced Jeremy John's show on uh, Verizon Go 90s network. And I executive produced for Lionsgate for their Comic-Con HQ stuff. And it had been a while since I had done a project outside of, you know, my regular show. And I decided I wanted to do a documentary and I started I started weighing and I had a couple of options for what direction I could go with the documentary. And one of those ideas was movie trailers because, you know, they're so prominent. We talk about them so much. We, they get as much coverage as the movies themselves do now when a new trailer drops. I mean, it's what everybody talks about. Right. And what happens is when I'm getting ready to get into a new project, the first thing I do is I go to Amazon and I start looking for books on the subject. And, you know, you go there if you look for woodworking chairs, you'll find 500 books on that. Like sure. literally, you'll find hundreds of books. I searched for books about movie trailers, and there were two. Really? Two. Just wow. two. And it was at that moment that I went, this is what we have to do a documentary on. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, we all know them, and we we literally talk about them so little, despite the fact that we talk about them all the time. And uh, so we did. And, and as a side note, I was very lucky to get one of the authors of one of those books. His name's a guy by the name of Dr. Keith Johnson. He's a film professor at a university in England and uh, literally wrote the book on movie trailers. So he was one of the guys we got. And, and that's how this whole thing got started. Wow. And how long ago was that? That was the decision to go was probably a year ago this month it was probably last october october 2019 was probably when i pulled the trigger and said this is what we're doing we're going to make this documentary and that's when the ball started rolling and we actually filmed we probably filmed our first interviews like four weeks after that i mean we moved fast like once once i made the decision to do it the ball started rolling pretty quickly and, and we actually had cameras rolling about yeah about four weeks later that's awesome. And then were you working with, I mean, obviously it's, you know, independent. Were you working with a specific production company or anything? Uh, just me. Just you. It, wow. it was me. Now I've got two guys that work with me uh, on my YouTube channel. Uh, my brother-in-law, Ray Ora, who does all my graphics for me. Yeah. And uh, a guy by the name of Jonathan Voiko, or as we call him, Fact Checker Jonathan. He's literally been with me since my days at AMC. Really? Um, yeah, I, I, me and I still remember. It was the first, Jonathan Voiko, I think, was the first guy that Dennis Zen and I hired specifically as a post-production person. And uh, I still remember when he came in, we interviewed him and, and we hired him. And he's, he's been with me at AMC, at Collider. Um, I helped him. One of my best friends was the CFO of Fine Brothers. And uh, so I, I helped arrange for him to get a job at the Fine Brothers. And then I went off on my own and Jonathan came and started working with me again. So, so it was really me and these two guys, Jonathan and Ray, my editor and, and my graphics guy. And uh, and that was it. And we just started rolling from there. I hired uh, a research assistant 
to help me with some stuff. But that's it. I mean, other than that, it was really just just me <laughs> like yeah. writing it and and uh, and arranging the interviews and then shooting it and yeah. So that's uh, I mean, it, it's it's weird when you think about making it yourself. But one of the biggest hurdles in filmmaking in general is scheduling, sure. and there's a freedom that comes from doing projects with just yourself or just yourself and like one and two other people. Uh, And that's why we were able to move so fast and why we were able to like go from approving the concept to actually rolling cameras in like a number of weeks because it was just us. So sometimes there's an advantage to that. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Now, did you, you know, when I, when I watch trailers, you know, uh, along with most the, American, not even American, just most the film fans of the world. I love movie trailers. Um, a lot of times, not a lot of times, but you do get the trailers where it's like it was totally misleading. It was totally, you know, not what I expected. Um, you know, from the trailer, perhaps false advertising in a way, I guess you could say. Uh, you know, one example I can think of is Age of Ultron. Um, you know, I thought it was going to be way more menacing, way more, you know, uh, uh, I thought Ultron would be way more menacing, everything like that. Do you guys touch on that in the movie at all? Um, not to give, you know, it all away, but do you guys touch on that on bad trailers? <laughs> yeah, actually, we so the name of the movie is is movie trailers, a love story. And really, it, I mean, so it's about movie trailers, but really specifically, it's about movie trailers and their relationship with us, the audience. And and the the allegory of it throughout the movie is that that the love story between us and movie trailers. And we break it into 12 chapters. So the, the movie has 12 chapters. And there's a set of three chapters that are kind of dedicated to the complicated relationship part, the things that aren't so good, the problems we call it. And one of those problem chapters is misleading trailers. Uh, When trailers um, don't really present what the movie properly is and are – our um, example of that is like going on a online date and you know, you're getting there and your date looks nothing like their picture. <laughs> That's what a misleading trailer does. Right. Sure. And so, and there's two types of misleading trailers. So, and we talk about both of these in the movie, there's the misleading trailer as far as showing you a bunch of stuff that isn't actually in the movie. So that's one type of misleading. And then the other type of misleading is when the movie leads you to believe it's a completely different kind of movie. Now, one of the biggest examples of this, and we do touch on this this one specific example in the movie itself, but one of the big examples of a really misleading trailer, one of the worst ever, was this Walden Media movie uh, based on the book. It's called Bridge to Terabithia. Mm-hmm. That came out, I think it was in 2006, I think is when it came out. At any rate, Bridge of Terabithia, if you watch the trailer, and we play the trailer in the movie, it, it's, it's like, it's telling you that this movie is, hey, did you love, you know, Chronicles of Narnia? Do you love Lord of the Rings? Well, come to this magical, this magical land of Terabithia. It's a movie about these two kids who find this magical kingdom in the woods, and it's all about their adventures. That's not what that movie is about at all. Right. That movie is about a kid who dies <laughs> and the other kid dealing with the grief of the death of their friend. Right. And it's like there's hardly any of the movie actually takes place in this in this just in their imaginations, this make-believe Terabithia land. Very little of the film actually takes place there. And when I, I, one executive of Walden Media was asked, you know, about that trailer, it's like why they made the trailer that way. And they said, because it's impossible to sell a movie about a dead kid. And so that's just, <laughs> that's which is point. true. Yeah. Um, and there are a lot of other examples we go into, but that bridge to Terabithia is definitely one of them. And, and the other problem areas we talk about. So one of the chapters is, you know, the problem of misleading trailers. Um, then there's the problem of too many trailers. And then there's the problem of trailers that give away too much. Right. And so those are three chapters in it that kind of, we kind of put all the problem, the complicated part of this love story in that one part. Um, so yes, we absolutely do cover 
misleading trailers. Yeah, good, good. <laughs> Definitely looking forward to that. Uh, but, I mean, so when when will this be released? We're, like where I can see it, where the you know my audience can see it. When when will it be released? How will it be released? What's what's going on with that? Right. So as far as releasing the movie goes, I mean, a lot of people would ask me when I was making the movie where is it going to be available? How do we watch it? And, and I literally said, and it was the honest truth, I literally did not give one second of thought about where does this movie go when I'm done making it. I, I really didn't. It was all of my thought was just on making the movie. And so we finished the film and it's now played in a, in a it's played in one film festival. It's getting ready to play in another. I mean, we were just really lucky that we were selected to play uh, at NBC Universal's Portland International Film Festival. And uh, we were actually a finalist for the jury prize for best documentary. Uh, we lost out to another documentary that was infinitely better than mine. Um, so we didn't win best documentary of the festival. But still, to get into you know yeah. a, a festival like that, that, that is run by Comcast and NBC Universal was great. Um, we were also accepted. Uh, we got selected for the Studio City International Film Festival. We got a couple more coming. And as we wrap up that, now we're just starting. We are literally just starting to look at what do we do with the film. So my goal right now is to have it available by the end of the year, and which okay. is coming up incredibly fast. We're already <laughs> at the end of October. right? Um, so our goal is to have it up by the end of the year. Now, whether that means it's going to be on Tubi or Amazon Prime or whether it means it's going to be on some other service. I don't know yet. Like we're just starting to have those meetings. Like I've got a meeting on Monday specifically with a, another organization. So um, I don't know exactly where yet, but I am aiming for end of the year. So okay. fingers crossed. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Now, did you, um, you know, to kind of go back to the Genesis, what uh, have you, has this been something you've been interested in making a documentary? Were you looking for a documentary and then you got the aha moment? Oh, I could do a documentary about that. Or was it just kind of, I can't find anything on movie trailers. Let me make something about movie trailers. <laughs> like how was it? <laughs> yeah. I Well, like I said, I, I hit a point you know, around March, April, May of last year that I knew it was time for me to, to do another project outside of my regular YouTube shows. Um, I, I just find like I, to keep myself creative, I think a lot of people who work on YouTube do this, you know, to keep yourself sharp and to keep yourself creative and to keep the creative juices flowing to also do other projects outside of YouTube. And I knew that's what I wanted to do. And I very quickly knew it was going to be a documentary because I was not interested in pulling together a full production to do a narrative of any kind. Like I, I'd given like two minutes of thought of finding a screenwriter, like finding somebody out there who's written a screenplay that they're really happy with and they just want somebody to make it and, you know, buying the rights to it and then pulling together a little crew and making, but Right. I thought, you know, I just don't have the time for that. I, I just absolutely don't have the time for that. And I thought if I'm going to do something, it's going to be, have to be something that it can just be me and my two guys. And a documentary was just the best way to go with that. So it was between, there was about a two month period when I was trying to figure out then what's the documentary going to be about. That's when I came across the whole Amazon thing of finding no books on movie trailers. And that's right. when I had the aha moment. Okay. Okay. So there you have it, folks. That's the aha moment that John Campia had. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's, it's great. I, I mean, I'm a huge fan of documentaries and yeah, that's definitely uh, in a fan of movie trailers. So it's a, it's a win-win for me. So, and uh, hopefully uh, the people listening will, will check it out as well. Uh, is there any, anything else you wanted to mention about it? What's, uh, you know, are, are there any, other details you want to give us to entice us to watch it? Well, I mean, <laughs> I, what the interesting thing about it, and this is why it was a lot of fun, is that as long as I've been covering movies, it is really weird how much you realize you don't know about trailers. Yeah. And that was a, a huge process for me and, and one of the most wonderful things. So, like, we go all the way back to the very beginning. You know, the first movie trailer was actually done in 1913. Really? And yeah, it was, and it was kind of at the behest of Marcus Lowe's, who is the guy behind Lowe's theaters, the big Lowe's theater chain. 
And he had a bunch of theaters that he owned. But in some of those theaters, they would sometimes run live stage productions, like live plays as well in the movie theaters. And so he had a show coming up called The Pleasure Seekers. And what happened was he had a head of marketing named Niles Granlund. And Niles Granlund had this idea that he would go and film some of the rehearsals of this live stage play for Pleasure Seekers and then take that footage, cut it together, and then put it on in the movie theater after the movie was done to promote, hey, folks, go watch Pleasure Seekers at one of our other theaters, right? And that's how movie trailers began. And the funny thing is, that's also where the term came from because he put it on after the movies. And that's what trailers started to do. In other words, the promotional piece trailed the movie itself. So they became known as trailers. And even though trailers now play before the movies, we still call them trailers to this day. And that's where it all came from. So we go everywhere from the very genesis of movie trailers, how they became popularized, like between 1920 and the 1960s, how the Artur filmmakers in the 60s revolutionized all that from, you know, Kubrick to, um, you know, Cecil B. DeMille and and Alfred Hitchcock and how they revolutionized trailers as well. And then the whole era of the inner world guy with guys like Don LaFontaine. And we take it right into the modern context and how they're approached now. We look at the influence, like major influences, like things like, Iron Man, how, how Iron Man, the movie radically changed movie trailers, how the Phantom Menace was, is one of the major, the trailer for the Phantom Menace is actually one of the most major turning points in the history of the movie trailer. So we go through like all this stuff. We cover so much ground in like just under an hour and a half. It's, it's a lot of fun. If you're a movie fan and you've always liked watching trailers, I think you're going to have a lot of fun and and hopefully learn a few things as well uh, with movie trailers, a love story. So it was a lot of fun to make. That's awesome. It, and it seems like you you got this done just in time. Uh, you know, you said you started this about a year oh. ago and then uh, COVID happened. And <laughs> it seemed, did you get all the interviews done before COVID? No. Uh, oh, and that's man. the thing. The I, I mean, I was very lucky that we had the vast majority uh, before the real lockdown happened happens we were we had done the vast majority the one interview we did that was kind of after the lockdown started and we were very careful about the place we selected to go and shoot it we only had four people there to do it but we got ashley miller who is the screenwriter of uh the first thor movie with chris hemsworth he was also the screenwriter for x-men first class um and stuff like that and he was the the last interview that we did once the pandemic started, but we, we did it the one time we did it very safe. It was great and everything, but we decided after that, no more. And unfortunately there were one or two interviews that I still wanted to do that. We just had to bail on, unfortunately, because the whole thing had, had started. And, um, but I mean, we were lucky that we had the vast majority of the shooting done before the lockdown. And then we just spent rest of the, uh, the rest of the last six, seven months just in post-production. And uh, you're right. It was, we were very, very fortunate that we were able to be in that place. A lot of productions weren't as lucky as us. Oh, definitely. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. Great timing. (laughs) If uh, there's one good thing to come out of this, you know, you got that done, done in time. So that's good. (laughs) Uh, Unique thing about our show is we like to have guests on uh, that, uh, are prominent and who have fans and everything. We like to have them on to discuss a movie uh, that their fans can kind of see what they think about a certain movie, kind of get a different uh, feel for what, uh, what they like and everything like that. So um, get a different uh, perspective and everything uh, on that. Um, so we talk about a movie and today we're talking unforgiven 1992 film uh 
directed by starring Clint Eastwood, uh, also starring Gene Hackman, Morgan Freeman, Richard Harris. Got a whole bunch of uh, other character actors in this. But uh, but yeah, definitely excited to, to, to talk about this with you. Now, uh, I had send you, sent you a list of movies. There wasn't much to choose from, but why, why, why this movie, John? Why, why, why'd you pick this movie? Um, I, for, for a couple of reasons. One, I think Unforgiven is the greatest Western of all time. Like, okay. I, I don't just think it's the greatest of the modern era. I honestly think it is the greatest Western of all time. And beyond that, the Western is really something that's not done nearly enough anymore. I mean, there's just, there's yeah. not a lot of Westerns that come out every year. And so, uh, and it's fun because when you look at the greatest Westerns of all time, you're just, for the most part, there are definitely others, but for the most part, you're really, a conversation about the greatest Westerns of all time is kind of ultimately a conversation about the filmography of Clint Eastwood. Right, <laughs> I mean, <yeah>. anyway, <laughs> when, it, when it comes down to it, right. uh, whether it's Jonesy Wales or anything else, but, but yeah, there's, there's something so hauntingly special. The, the, the filmmaking in Unforgiven, regardless of genre, to me, it's like some of the most sensitive, apt, skillful, pure filmmaking I've ever seen in any movie. Yeah. And uh, it, it's a movie that is setting based, but very character grounded. I mean, it's just, it is Clint Eastwood at his best. And yeah, uh, yeah so when I saw that you'd put uh, Unforgiven on the list, my eyes just instantly went to it. And I'm like, that's the one. We got to talk <laughs> Unforgiven. Yeah, that's the one. I because are you a are you a Western guy or are you just more of an Eastwood guy? I, I'm not. You no, know, you know when it comes like I appreciate a good Western for sure, but when it comes down to it, I'm not what you would call a Western guy. Yeah. Um, like at all. Like when I can see, you know, the odd film that comes out. Like I absolutely love the remake of Three Ten to Yuma with Christian yeah. Bale, uh, Russell Crowe. You know, when I look at films like that, I can really appreciate them. But then when you go back to the, you know, the way they made them, like thirty, and it's crazy to think that Unforgiven is almost thirty years old now. Yeah, I mean, because like seriously, when you look at that list, right, of your four main players in it, right, you're talking right. Clint Eastwood, Gene Hackman, uh, Morgan Freeman. Uh, Richard Harris, if you had told us when you look at, at the age of that group of Hall of Fame actors that 30 years from now, we'll only have lost one of them. Right. I mean, that, 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 I mean, that just would have been crazy, but it is a hall of fame lineup to use a sports analogy. Unforgiven <laughs> is also a hall of fame lineup with some of the greatest actors and performers of all time. Yeah acting together in the greatest Western of all time. Right. It just, if, you, if this, I mean, if, if it doesn't get you excited, <laughs> I don't know that you have a pulse as a film fan. If this is a movie that does not get you excited, I do not know how you have a pulse as a film fan, but anyway, absolutely it's, it's yeah. I mean, it's first of all, I mean, there's so much, uh, for lack of a better term, badassery in it. Uh, but, but, uh, but yeah, just like you, you know, you were saying like the, the, um, cinematography is beautiful you know outside of just who's in it you know uh and clint eastwood does a great job just just directing this thing and it yeah like you said the i was going to mention yeah that i mean you got three of them who are still yeah still with us two of them still working because gene hackman i believe is retired yeah um but yeah clint eastwood's still going at it morgan freeman he's you know he's still popping up here and there and things but uh but yeah for for them to still be around 30 years later is insane and clint eastwood is still putting out decent work yeah that's what that is what kind of blows my mind too which is um, nuts i mean because he's still doing it on screen and off screen i mean that's right. that's the thing he's still doing it both I think he's 92 years old now. And and by the way, like, you know, you mentioned Eastwood directed it. The the movie was written by David Webb Peoples, who is, and if the name sounds familiar, he's the same guy who wrote 12 Monkeys, but more notably, he's also the same guy who wrote the original Blade Runner, who yeah. wrote the scre screenplay, at least for, I mean, obviously he didn't write the original story, but he wrote the screenplay for Blade Runner. Uh, and then, you know, he comes in and does this. And you know what's funny about it is when you think about a Western, Western in some people's minds is kind of akin 
to action. Like right. a Western is de facto an action film. But Unforgiven, while it's got incredible amount of, of brooding badassery, there's one action sequence in the movie. <laughs> yeah. There's literally one action sequence in the movie That's and it true. only lasts for about 90 seconds and it's some of the most heart-pounding, drama-infused 90 seconds ever. And yet, you so you come out of that movie and you feel the adrenaline pumping and you feel it. And when you look back on Unforgiven, you think of this, this badass Western, but really it's just all story and all narrative like with like one little action scene at the end. That's true. Brilliant that way. Yeah. And I, I, yeah, I totally agree with you to have that, that big thing right at the end. And like you said, leaving with this, just this, the adrenaline just kind of, you know, just makes the the rest of the movie. Yeah, you you just kind of look back on it. Wow, that movie is badass. But yeah, like you said, when you look, it's actually a very simple plot. Like there's no like there's a plot, but when you really just look at what what it's about, and if you told someone, oh, it's about this guy who's going after these guys who cut up a prostitute um, in a uh, burlesque uh, or a brothel, I should say, and he used to be a bad guy. He's trying to be good now, but he needs the money, and he goes after them. Like that's <laughs> that's that's essentially uh, you know what the plot is you know to go to go after this but yeah it's totally a, a character movie and and but that's yeah. the brilliance of it right because ninety five percent of the time the movie is the plot like the plot is the movie and that's that's there's nothing that's perfectly great that's some of the best movies of all time the interesting thing about because you just described the film perfectly but the interesting thing about Unforgiven is. What the movie is about is actually tucked inside of that plot because really the movie is about this man, this Bill Money, and his struggle and his internal demons. And it's set against the background of that plot. Uh, you know, a prostitute gets, you know, wrongfully um, attacked right. and left cut up and scarred. A bounty goes out on the heads of the cowboys who did it. And these other cowboys, Bill Money being the guy, and he goes gets his friend, um, who well, what was uh, more Ned was Morgan Freeman's character's name. Ned. He goes and get them, and they're just going to go out and try to collect the bounty. But really, what the movie is really about is Bill Money, played by Clint Eastwood. It's about the Showfield kid, played by this guy by the name of James Wolfett, Wolfett or something like that. Yeah. Funny thing, he's one of the lead stars of probably the greatest Western of all time, the one best picture at the Academy Awards, and he hardly ever worked again. Right. After, yeah. Yeah, which is really, really strange. But it's really about these two characters, and they're fundamentally the opposites of each other. You know, what... Uh, uh, I was almost said Clinton. I don't know why Clint Eastwood. <laughs> yeah. What what Clint Eastwood? What what money wants is he is at the heart a dark man who's trying to be good. You've right. got the Showfield kid who's just a kid who wants to be dark, and they are they represent the polar opposites of each other, and neither of them can be what they want, and both fall back into what their prime nature is, which is the actual opposite of what each other are. And that's really what the movie's about within this thing. The other funny thing about Unforgiven, when you really think about it, Unforgiven, let me rephrase that. John Wick is Unforgiven. <laughs> Yeah. John Wick is unforgiven in the modern age. I mean, you yeah. really look at it. It's this this guy who's incredibly dark and violent with an incredible past of being really good at being bad. Right. And they meet the love of their lives who completely change their lives. They change themselves because of the love of the women in their lives. They both lose the women in their lives. And once they do, along comes a spark. For right. John Wick, it was his car and his puppy. For uh, for money or, or and, uh, and uh, Clint Eastwood, it was the fact that he's struggling to provide for the children that he has and an opportunity comes along for some money and blah, blah. But, but ultimately, and then when push comes to shove, these are both the Baba Yaga. And you get to the end of Unforgiven and you realize, oh, this is why he's so <laughs> famous. And... 
Yeah. Uh, and it's brilliant, really. But you don't think John Wick and Unforgiven, but they, they really are. <laughs> John Wick is heavily, heavily, heavily influenced by Unforgiven. No, definitely. Yeah, you're right. You don't think of that. And now I am thinking of that. That's totally accurate. You got this, you know, Keanu Reeves, this character, John Wick, you know, trying to totally just forget his past life, move on, you know, and and now he's kind of forced into this thing uh, that he has to go after. And and yeah, that's wow. Great, great comparison there. Yeah. It's, you, yeah. Like you said, you wouldn't think to com- compare a Western Clint Eastwood movie to, to the modern John Wick. But yeah, that's it's very accurate. And, and they're both both the films, too, are like filled with like great one liners, whether it's John Wick's. Yeah, I'm thinking I'm back. And and there's this great line. And I'm, 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 I'm paraphrasing here. I'm not. I'm sure I'm not getting it word for word, but he's talking to the Schofield kid who wants nothing more than to be a killer. He wants right. to be, you know, a killer cowboy. And and Clint Eastwood says to him, "Money says to him, it's a hell of a thing killing a man. You take everything he's got and everything he's ever gonna have." Yes. Yeah. And you hear that, and you're just like, "Oh my God, uh, it, it's so deep." But but actually, my the, my favorite part of it. My favorite line, I think, in the movie is it's near the end and he's got Gene Hackman, who is the antagonist of the film, uh, Little Bill. He's the antagonist of the film. And Little Bill is a like an apex level villain in a movie because he's got that trait that he really does see himself as the good guy. He sees himself as the white hat. He's, he sees himself as being virtuous, protecting a town and keeping villains out and all this kind of stuff. And at the end of the movie, you know, Clint Eastwood's got him and, and little bill is saying, I don't deserve to die like this, like blah, blah, blah. And then Clint Eastwood, again, I'm paraphrasing. I can't remember exactly word for word the word he says. He goes, uh, deserve ain't got nothing to do with it yeah, yeah. or something like that. Yeah. And it's like, well, if he didn't just describe life in a nutshell right there. <laughs> oh, my yeah. God. Well, I, I read something that it's it's not, you know, these Western things. Like, I mean, obviously, they it's very black and white in this movie because I don't know about you, but, you know, Gene Hackman's character, um, Little Bill, or Little Bill, right? Yeah, Little yep. Bill. Um, you know, he's you can't really see him as a bad guy until about, you know, when he starts beating like Morgan Freeman's character with the whip and stuff. Then you're like, okay, this guy's nasty. But like the first like three fourths of the movie, you're thinking like, okay, you know, he's, I I understand. I understand his character. I understand where he's getting at, what, what his morals are and you know, how he wants to protect this town. And you understand that Clint Eastwood used to be a bad guy that's trying to do good. Same with Morgan Freeman, you know? So there's like black and white, like there's no clear cut protagonist, antagonist kind of like, you know, game of Thrones style. Um, but then, but in Westerns, it, I read something like it said, like, you know, it's all about who survives, you know, it's not about who's good or bad. It's who survives at the end, last man standing. Mm. And I, I kind of feel like that's what this is about. Yes. I think, you know, Gene Hackman ultimately is the antagonist and in Clint Eastwood is the protagonist. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I just, I, I found that interesting. Um, I mean, what, what were your thoughts on, on, you know, Gene Hackman's character? I mean, did you, feel he was the villain the entire time or i mean did it kind of just gradually get there for you i think they give you hints right away yeah about gene hackman's character because you know the movie kind of starts with with the 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 prostitute being assaulted and being attacked and scarred right and he's called in to kind of pass some kind of judgment and you know the 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 other girls in the brothel are like hang them. He's like, nah, they just made a mistake. Don't worry about it. We're not going to hang them. We're, I'm just right. going to whip them a little bit. Yeah. And then ultimately they don't even get whipped. Uh, little bill just tells the guys who did it. Okay. You're going to have to give their owner. You're gonna have to give the brothel owner, not the girl. You got to give the brothel owner a couple of horses. Right. And the girls are flabbergasted. It's like, you're not even going to whip them. Right. Like, and you're just, you're going to give him some horses for her getting scarred up so they get that but then where they really communicate because then they they make it beautifully morally ambiguous right yeah because 
Then you see little Bill building his house. He's just a guy building. He wants to have a front porch where he can look out at the sunset, right? But then they bring in English Bob, yes. played by Richard Harris. And once they do, they start it off again, a little ambiguous. Here comes little Bill to enforce the law about no guns in town. But as that interaction with little Bob continues, you start to realize there is a viciousness in little Bob. There's an evil streak in right. little Bob. There's a darkness in little Bob that continues to build and you start, you, it really drives it home more and more where maybe you're not seeing it in the actions right now, but here's what's in his soul. Right. And that to me was just utterly brilliant. I mean, it was just fantastic. And, and that leads into something else that makes this movie just on another level, which is the fact that so much of the movie is done with subtlety. Like a, a lot of movies today would, would have this big didactic scene where just filled with exposition where one character is telling another character. Like if it was, if Unforgiven was made today with lesser filmmakers, well, you got to understand something about little Bob. Little Bob has got this exterior, but he's a vicious, vicious man. And he loves to kill those he thinks are in the right. Like that's what a modern yeah. lesser filmmaker would do, right? They would fill it with exposition right. and kind of didactic writing. But what Clint Eastwood and uh, David Webb Peoples does is they make you, they let you just observe they let yeah. you just observe. And like that goes even right to like the way the movie begins and ends. This movie understands subtlety and it understands what has to be shown on screen, what is important to show on screen, and what is not important to show on screen. A lesser filmmaker today making this movie would have showed you money being played by Clint Eastwood, meeting the woman who changes him, and show you a five-minute montage of his life turning around and being a good guy and then sadly boo-hoo losing his wife. But that's not how this movie starts. Right. It starts with just some simple text on a screen. This bad man met this good woman who changed him. Right. And that's it. A lesser movie, would you'd have to show you Clint Eastwood going back to the ranch, gathering up his kids, having all the money, and going off to live happily ever after in San Francisco. But that's not what this movie does. It says, little text, good woman's mother came to visit her grave, found um, uh, William and, and the children gone. R You're rumor right. has it they went. And they just focused everything with such efficiency that we only show what needs to be shown for the sake of driving the narrative of this story and deepening our understanding of the characters. And anything that doesn't do that, we don't need. We didn't want, we didn't see Ned die. Right. Yeah, we did. Because yeah. we didn't need to. And, and uh, I, oh. love, I love how we found out with uh Clint Eastwood and Schofield you know I love the Schofield kid I love how we found the audience finds out when they do I thought that was brilliant because the last time the audience sees Ned he's getting whipped and he's gonna get whipped some more and we're like okay and then when she comes and says that it's like whoa it's like a punch in the gut you know and it's uh and and you know back to what you were saying about the beginning of the end I love that uh cinematography of oh, you know the sunset like the silhouettes it, and yeah yeah, it's so great. I, I want to say that was him digging the grave at the beginning. Her grave. It seemed, you know, se seemed like it. I, I'm not sure, but um, but uh, yeah, at the end, you know, it's the same thing. It seemed like it was maybe the mother visiting the grave at the end. I don't know, but uh, but yeah, great, beautiful shots in this movie. Um, well, but, to your point, that that point you were making about the fact that you know they tell us Ned is dead, we find out when the Schofield kid and money find out mm -hmm. if they had done that again with this imaginary scenario where if they made unforgiven today, audiences sitting in a movie theater finding out that way, what would we all be saying? All right. Well, obviously he's not really dead because we yeah. didn't see him <laughs> die. Right. So right. obviously he's not really dead, but that's not how Clint Eastwood tells his story. Like yeah. you're absolutely right. It's so key that we found out when they found out and there's something subtle there's something subtly horrific about that. And it just made it hurt a little bit more. Yeah. And uh, when Clint finds out, it's not like, oh, now we're going to watch him find out. No, we're experiencing finding out as he does. And I think that's a yeah. great point that you made. Yeah, definitely. I love how, yeah, that, that, that touch, you know, it's like, uh, you know, sometimes it's, it's good for the audience to, to know what the character doesn't. But in this case, I felt it was so appropriate for us to find out at 
at the same time. Um, now back to uh, Eng- uh, what's his name? English English Bob? Richard Harris. Richard yes, Harris. English Bob. <laughs> um, you know, uh, this is interesting, especially with the the writer he's with. You know, you have the the oh, writer yes. who is writing his autobiography. Um, Saul Rubinick. Saul Rubinick. Um, and it, it's so interesting because, you know, he goes from writing his and then, you know, they're they're captured in the jail and Gene Hackman starts telling them stories. And then he's all like, OK, I want to write your story. And then, you know, at the end, Clint Eastwood's telling him stuff and you, you could tell like, oh, I want to write this guy's story. Um, what uh, what are your thoughts on this character? What uh, what do you think that I don't know? W.W. Bochamp. He doesn't write letters. He writes books. Um, (laughs) First of all, you know what's really funny? My wife and I are binging um, uh, Schitt's Creek right now. Mm. And we're in in the final season. And who should pop up on screen but W.W. Bochamp himself, Saul Rubinick, uh, the actor, appears as a guest in one of the episodes. I'm like, I'm talking about Unforgiven tomorrow. This is so (laughs) serendipitous that he pops up here. Um, Here's the brilliant thing about the character. First of all, he's he's very fun. He's a nice juxtaposition against the world that he's in there because he doesn't belong in this world, this W.W. Bochamp character. He doesn't belong there. So he's a nice juxtaposition. But... Here's what's really great about it. In this movie, you can tell Clint Eastwood hates, hates uh, what I would call necessary exposition. He doesn't like to tell the audience stuff through heavy diatribe and exposition. But there are certain things the audience needs to know. How do we do it while making it fit naturally and having it all come out naturally? W.W. Bochamp. And we have him, so he becomes the avatar for the audience, if you will. He's the avatar of us, the audience in this movie, where English Bob will tell him things that that we wouldn't want and Clint Eastwood wouldn't want Richard Harris turning to the camera. Hey, folks, here's what's happening now. So what does he do? (laughs) He puts in this avatar on behalf of the audience to become a natural flow for that exposition that we need to know. And so then that transfers from English Bob over to little bill and little bill starts to explain things to him. So again, we are learning as the character is learning as opposed to direct didactic exposition, which is like when a filmmaker feels feel like they need to pablum feed the audience. Instead, he puts in this character that, is actually so crucial and so key for such a seemingly unimportant character. And I'm so glad you brought him up. He's actually 100% essential to the way this movie and this story is told. And, um, and, and again, just another stroke of genius on, on behalf of both peoples and, and, and Eastwood um, in kind of executing and how they communicated the story to the audience. Yeah. I love the scenes with him. And then when, you know, Gene Hackman is just, uh, he totally deserved the supporting actor uh, win for this. I, I think he could have actually gone for lead. I'm not sure who won for 92 movies, but uh, but yeah, um, he, I think he could have gone for lead because I think he has at least the same amount of screen time as uh, Eastwood does. But um, but I digress. But but I'm glad he won something. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's great. I love the scene. You know what he's uh, in there telling stories to uh, uh, WW, and you know he's uh, you know the the roof is linking and everything like that. Oh, and so just, good. Yeah, such a such a great scene. And Gene Hackman just like I don't know. He's just so just gives it his all. He's so enthusiastic and just so great. Um, it's hard. You know, it's, it's, it's hard it's to cool. look away. When you look at Gene Hackman, and you you think about this, there is nothing, if you just imagine Gene Hackman in a pair of blue jeans and a t-shirt, there is nothing at all intimidating about that site. There's nothing at all remotely intimidating about that site. Right. But you then go and you watch Unforgiven, Mm -hmm. or you watch French Connection, or you watch um, Mississippi Burning. For somehow, some way, Gene Hackman is just on another level of an actor, and such a shame he, he doesn't act anymore. He's just able to go, oh, my character is supposed to be this guy that influences dread and fear in the people around him as soon as he looks like he's getting stern. Okay. And he can do it. Right. He emotes it, despite the fact, like for a guy like Dwayne The Rock Johnson, that's easy. You look at him, yeah, I'd be intimidated by him, yeah. no problem. <laughs> but you look at Daniel Day-Lewis, 
you know, the greatest of all time, in my opinion. I think Daniel Day-Lewis is the GOAT. You look at him on a red carpet. Okay, yeah, Strong Wood could push that guy over. Oh, but he's Bill the Butcher? Yeah. <laughs> oh, but he's in his character in Last of the Mohicans? Right. Oh, like, okay. And that's what guys like Gene Hackman and, and Daniel Day-Lewis and people of that caliber can do. And, uh, and it's, it's just amazing. Again, it's like you're watching this movie and I don't know if we fall, I don't even know that I fully appreciate the fact that you are watching four of the best to ever do it all doing yeah. it on screen together. And, and it's just, it's sick. It's absolutely yeah, sick. Definitely. And it uh, definitely runs in the family, in the Harris family. Every time I hear his voice, I, uh, I always reminded like, oh, that's Jared Harris's father. Um, what, what, <laughs> what a lineage. Just I, Jared yeah. Harris. I, I love watching everything he's in. Yeah. I, I, and you, you, you still have to remind yourself his dad was Richard Harris. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh man, you're right. That, that is, <laughs> that is some family tree talent right there. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. And then uh, one more point I wanted to touch on is just uh the toll of killing someone that's definitely oh. a prominent theme in this movie you know you have these two guys who used to go around killing people morgan freeman clint eastwood or i should call them by their characters but you know you guys know who i'm talking about <laughs> um ned and ned and money um you know they go around killing people but then when it comes down to it ned is about to kill the first bounty and he can't do it he just he cannot bring himself to do it. And that just totally shakes him. And then Clint Eastwood, you know, he takes over, you know, he, he gets it. He understands what Ned's going through, but he really needs this money and he, you know, needs to follow through with his commitment he made. I just thought that was such a powerful, you know, scene. And then especially once, you know, the, um, Schofield kill, kid killed the other bounty and how he felt afterwards just kind of oh you know at first trying to act like a tough guy like oh i killed him three shots and then he starts just crying so like the toll of killing people just what that has on someone is just uh yeah definitely a prominent uh theme in this movie yeah and the existential you know issue of what really what comes out at the end is that while we as the audience can admire and cheer for Clint Eastwood being a better man. The reality is when it came down to it, he realized that all that killing he had done had in many ways permanently damaged him. Yeah. It's, it's, it's at the end of it, he couldn't really change at the end of it. He could, he could alter his behavior. He could, he could do that. But at the end of the day, all that killing fundamentally permanently damaged him and permanently stained him and permanently scarred him. And when push came to shove, like when he saw Ned, I mean, that, that was John Wick's puppy getting killed. I mean, that was his moment there. Right. And, and like the kid, as we were talking about earlier, is the complete juxtaposition opposite of that, of he wants to be this hard ass. He wants to be this badass, but one taste of it. And he realized this is not my nature. This is not my nature. And it's so powerful. There's this one of the final scenes of the movie before Ned goes into town. You know, he's, he gives the gun. The kid tries to give him his gun and he says, I'm never going to use this again. You know, yeah. and, and which is such a flip from this hard ass. I can I've killed five men. I can do this. It's like, I'm never going to use this gun again. Right. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's, just a, it's a great observation. And again, just an, yeah. another level. It's just yeah. another level to this it's movie. It's just so much, so much to this. And then, yeah, I mean, obviously what we alluded to earlier, just that badass scene at the end with Clint Eastwood, oh. the, you know, uh, and then seeing, you know, Morgan Free or, you know, Ned being there displayed in his dead body saying, you know, assassin, assassins, this is what happens to you or yep. something. The sign, you know, says something along those lines. You better and, bury uh, him. You better yep. bury him right, or I'm going to come back here and kill all of you. And I'm like, yes. okay. <laughs> oh, but yeah, when he walks in, it's raining, walks in with that shotgun. It's just like, oh, all right. Now it's going down. <laughs> now it's going down. And uh, yeah, just such a such a great moment. First kills the saloon owner and because, uh, you know, he's displaying this guy, you know, his fr- yeah. best friend in front of everyone 
kills him and then he's he's going after going after uh you know little bill going after little bill it misfires he throws the gun at him and you know they have a little standoff and then you know clint eastwood does the clint eastwood thing and destroys everybody you know (laughs) it's uh you know it's just yeah so so fitting but at the same time like you you know said earlier it doesn't show him riding off into the sunset with his kids, like with their new life in San Francisco. It's like, no, that's not what it's about. You know, that's, it's about this man who has to live with what he did in the past. It's, he's always going to feel what the title is unforgiven. You know, it's, I, I think that's what it uh, essentially is saying, you know, that just the, the title of the film, uh, essentially. So yeah, it's such a powerful movie. So, so many good messages and, you know, it's, for a western it's just it's two hours and 10 minutes i think and it just flies by it's just so yeah. such a good watch man yeah good and, choice and, good choice <laughs> yeah love it love it love it if you guys have not seen it i mean uh, yeah we just described it all in full but believe yeah. me us talking about <laughs> still it watch it still watch it. <laughs> it it's nothing it's nothing compared to actually seeing it and it yeah. uh, it it is i you know, I don't believe the perfect movie's ever been made, but I mean, if you were going to use the term loosely, I mean, it's practically a perfect movie. It's yeah. practically a perfect movie. It's just Definitely. so good. So, not, yeah, do check it out. Not just a perfect Western, a perfect, yeah, yeah, movie all around. Yeah, yeah definitely. Absolutely. What, would you say this is in your top 10, top 20, top 50? It's in my top 20. Okay. Um, it, it's in my top 20. My top, it's really funny. My top 10 has not changed in a long time <laughs> to be yeah. honest with you it's been a while <laughs> since anything i mean but it's like that's like all the all-time classics are in there like in my top some of the films in my top 10 are like uh lawrence of arabia uh are obviously the godfather film shawshank redemption yeah uh the star wars movies i count as one the lord of the rings trilogy i count as one the, the only film that's in my top 10 like I, I could list off all my top 10 and everybody would nod their head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe it is in your top 10. Maybe it's not. But it's, they're all movies that everybody would nod their head. I have one film in my top 10 that everybody, like I say this one and then you hear the record scratch and everybody stops in the room. <laughs> um, it's actually the Christopher Lambert, Sean Connery movie Highlander. The original Highlander is really? actually okay. in my top okay. 10. And then its sequel is, to me, one of the top three all time. I, I call it the Unholy Trinity, uh, the three worst Hollywood-produced wide-release films in Hollywood history. And the, the, so the first one is in my top 10 of all time. The second one is in my uh, Unholy Trinity of the three worst. So, yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Good stuff, man. Well, yeah, it's uh, been great. Do you have time for rapid fire questions real quick? Sure. Absolutely. Go ahead. All right. Let's do it. Uh, Go to movie snack. Popcorn. Absolutely. Guilty pleasure movie. Uh, cool as ice with vanilla ice. Ooh. <laughs> Sorry, that stopped me in my tracks. Uh, <laughs> celebrity you want to watch a movie with? Uh, Russell Crowe. Musical or horror? Musical. Favorite Chevy Chase movie? Spies Like Us. Spielberg, Scorsese, or Kubrick? Spielberg. Besides Star Wars, movie that made you want to get into doing something with movies as a job? That's a random question. Sorry. <sighs> <laughs> movie that made me want to get into movies? Oh... All right, I have to take a pass on that one. Because okay. uh, honest, honestly, Star Wars is my earliest, literally, or Star Wars is my earliest childhood memory. Right. Like, I remember my mom showing me Star Wars and then like three years, right, don't have any memories. And then after that, because like really Star Wars kind of cr- set me on wanting to be somehow in touch with movies my whole life. So it's hard, it's hard to think of a different one. <laughs> uh, I Love You from Barney or Baby Shark? I only first heard Baby Shark because my niece uh, sang it recently, so I will have to go with I Love You from Barney. Closer to and my And last generation. one, uh, go-to music to get ready for a live show or to get you pumped up. Uh, Hans Zimmer, Man of Steel score. What are you going to do when you're not saving the world? Ooh, good choice. Good choice. Awesome. Well, thank you for uh, doing that for me. I appreciate it. <laughs> no problem. <It> <laughs> but uh, I really appreciate you you coming on, man. Uh, definitely looking forward to seeing uh, movie trailers. A love story. Definitely going to check that out. And uh, yeah, we'll, uh, I assume you'll keep everyone updated on your social media accounts. Where can people find you? 
You guys can follow me on just about every single social media account, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, just at John Campia, and that's where you'll be able to find me. Good stuff, man. And uh, I said this to Christian Harloff when I had him on. I do have to say this to you. I would be remiss if I didn't say it. I watched a little show called Jedi Camp. Uh, Jedi Campia. <laughs> Jedi Council uh, back in 2015 inspired me to start the show. So if it wasn't for you guys, um, I wouldn't be uh, talking with you right now. Wouldn't be doing this. Wouldn't be talking to cool people. So I just wanted to say oh, thanks, man. I appreciate that. that. Yep. <laughs> so, all right, Jabba. I really appreciate you coming on. And it's been great talking with you. All right, had a lot of fun. Thanks for doing this. There you have it, folks. Unforgiven, John Campia. Be sure to check out Movie Trailers, a love story again. Make sure you're following him on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all that. He will have all the updates on the film and when and where you can watch it and all that definitely excited to to be able to see it and uh hopefully hopefully soon it's uh, uh i love movie trailers and love when they get into the history of it and all that you know just history of film and uh i learned something today about why it's called trailers so there you have it hope you hope you guys learned it as well but uh but that is it uh for us be sure to follow us on twitter at blockbuster cast again uh rate and review us on itunes that would help out a lot and hope you enjoyed the show but we will be back next week i know we've been a little uh, a little off on our, our, our release dates, but uh, trying to get back to the weekly schedule. Might do, you know, two weeks in a row, week off, and then two weeks in a row, week off. Might start, do, start doing a cadence like that. But, you know, it's my show. I'll do what I want. <laughs> but really appreciate everyone who tunes in every time an episode comes out. So, all right. Well, that is it for me, folks. For John, I'm Ben. And as always, grab some popcorn, grab some snacks. We'll catch you guys at the movies. <laughs>